listening to The Fret Files, the Guitar Workshop Podcast with Eric Daw. To participate in the show, go to my website, ericdaw.com. That's E-R-I-C-D-A-W dot com. Click on the contact link and submit your question or comment there. I'll use it as part of the show. The other way to do it is to call or text 757-774-8482. Leave your voicemail there and I'll use that as part of the show. And now, the Fret Files Podcast. Welcome to the Fret Files Podcast. My name is Eric Daw, your guitar scientist with 25 years of experience building and repairing guitars. Sitting beside me is my lovely co-host, Melissa. Greetings. I will read the listeners' submitted questions, and Eric will try to answer them the best he can, drawing on his experience as a professional luthier. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We got a lot of questions. Yes. Because we did an interview last episode. And so the questions just pile up in the meantime, right? This is a record, I think. I think we have seven voicemails. Whoa. And three pages of emails to read. Whoa. So let's not mess around. All right. Let's jump right into it. Shall we? Uh, I'm not really prepared for that. Hold on. What are we doing? Uh, Let's tell a story. We just got back from roller skating. That's true. And I haven't been roller skating in 15 years. And it was weird. It's been probably... 30 years for me. <laughs> there's a there's a roller skating rink here in Idaho Falls. It's called Starlight Skating. And it has not changed since, I don't know, 1973? Yeah. Yeah, it's weird. It's really frozen in time. It's like if there were still like a, an operational disco in, in your neighborhood. Yeah. Yeah, it's weird. Like the skates that we rented were probably from the 70s. And they st- they had still the same crappy sound system, just blasting music. It oh, was yeah. diff- different music than last time I was there. But deafening. Deafening. Anyway. Just blasting this. It was all, it was all edge and no point. <laughs> with the, the music. It was uh, it was fun though. It yeah. was fun. Let's take a call. Okay. Hi, Eric and Melissa. This is Joe down in Denver. Haven't called in a while. My question is about ebony fretboards. I've had, um, over the last few years, I think four or five guitars with ebony fretboards. Um, one from the seventies and through just, you know, newer models made just last few years. And each of them, except for one, has had cracks and checking uh, in the fretboard. Uh, so I'm wondering, is there something that can be done to prevent this from happening? Um, to another guitar I have with an ebony fretboard. And for these guitars that already have cracks and checking in the ebony fretboard, uh, is there something that I can do to remedy it? Uh, thanks a lot. Love the podcast. Yeah, cool. Thanks. Um, the best thing you can do is oil that fingerboard. Uh, ebony is more prone to to cracking and drying out than probably you know anything else that they use. So yeah, you need to oil it. Um, get a good fingerboard conditioning oil and uh, use that to prevent those cracks. That's the best thing you can do. 
uh, on the ones that are already cracked, you know, a good luthier should be able to um, fill those cracks, and uh, they just about disappear. Wow. So you could try that. Does it sound different in here? We're in a different room today. Uh, I, I hear more room noise because there's... It's more like room? A, yeah, there's more. <laughs> it's a bigger room, and I, yeah. I hear like ambient... I don't know if it comes through on the podcast. Anyhow, <coughs> that that takes care of that question. Mm-hmm. Thank you, sir. Thanks for calling. Hi, Eric and Melissa. This is Joe down in Denver yet again. Oh, hey, same uh, guy. My question Howdy, this Joe. time is about bird's eye maple necks. Oh. I've heard you answer questions about other neck woods in the past. Thought I would ask your opinion uh, as a luthier. Are bird's eye maple necks any different to work with? Um, have you seen any pattern over time of them aging uh, any differently than any other kind of neckwood? I'd just love to hear your thoughts. Thanks. Not really. I mean, you know, it 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 maple is kind of maple. Um, it, when you get into really figured or curly maple, uh, that's a little bit different. But bird's eye, it's not that different. It's beautiful, beautiful stuff. But uh, bird's eye maple, I don't. In my experience, it doesn't really age differently or do anything different than normal maple. Hmm. Yeah. Thanks again, Joe. Let's see. Uh, next. Up Hello, next. Eric and Melissa. This is Micah calling from Omaha, Nebraska. I am looking at a bunch of Telecasters and uh, Telecaster bodies. I'm looking at the little wire lead route from the neck pickup kind of diagonal toward the control cavity. And I'm wondering your opinion on what the heck, like why even put that thing there? (laughs) And if you're making replica guitars, such as the ones you make, do you use that thing or do you not route that? Because certainly you can (laughs) drill you know, a diagonal thing without needing that. So why is that there? And do you put that diagonal thing on a pinup custom or an Eric Daw custom and why or why not? <laughs> you guys are great. Thank you. Thanks. Uh, I do. I do use that diagonal route in between the neck pickup and the control cavity. Um, anything I can do to lighten up. I like, see, I like a lighter telly and, uh, it's hard to get super lightweight ash. That route doesn't make much difference, but any little bit helps. Um, I, I already get the lightest, you know, the lightest weight ash that I can. So I do use that diagonal route. I, I do that on all my bodies, but, um, uh, historically, why did they do it? I don't really know. I mean, it, it makes drilling easier rather than having to drill a, you know, six or eight inch long hole and then trying to feed wires through there, it makes it a lot easier with when you've got the route and then two short little jaunts of drilled out So, wood. So even the earliest blackguards had that route? Or? No, the very earliest did not. Okay. And then they, I mean, we're talking like 1950. Yeah. And then uh, I think by 51 or 52, then they started doing the, the diagonal route for the for the wires of the neck pickup to go to the control cavity. Interesting. 
So A, it makes it easier. B, it's historically accurate. C, it lightens up the body just a little bit. And I'll take any little bit. I'll take it. Cool. There you go. Neat. Thanks, Micah. Uh, yeah, thank you. Let's go uh, to the next call here. See what we got. Hey, Eric and Melissa. This is Corey from Nashville. I uh, I just emailed a question that thought I would uh, email my other question uh, or send it via voicemail. Um, so I just bought a an American professional uh, Telecaster with an all rosewood neck. And my question is, I know typically with uh, my guitars that have a rosewood fretboard that I condition them a couple times a year or just kind of as needed. So since this is a solid piece of rosewood, would I just want to condition and clean the entire neck front and back uh, and the headstock? Uh, I know it's probably a dumb question, but just not really sure since I've never had one. Anyway... Appreciate it and uh, love the show. Thanks. Yeah, anytime. Thanks for calling. Uh, I don't know for sure, but my guess is, and you might want to do some research on this, okay? But um, on a solid rosewood neck, my guess is that they've finished the back and the headstock. Um, at least, like with some kind of a satin finish. I could be wrong on that. If it's just, if it's purely an oil, if it's just an oil finish, then you could oil it, but my guess is they've finished it with some kind of like a satin poly or a satin lacquer or something, and you don't want to oil that. I've never heard of an all rosewood neck before. Is that yeah. a thing? I guess it is. Well, rarely, yeah, but it is a thing. Interesting. I I don't know. Off the top of my head, I just don't know if they... If they finish those or not, but my guess is that they do. There's no way they're. Yeah, there's no way they're they're sending out necks without finish on them. <laughs> <laughs> well, you say that, but yeah, my guess is uh, just the fingerboard. But um, you might want to do some research and see if that really if that's finished on the uh, on the back and on the headstock or not. It's got to be. They put a decal on it, right? Yeah, it's finished. I'm sh I'm sure it's finished. So. <laughs> So just just the fingerboard. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Okie dokie. Thanks for the call, my friend. Oh, wow. We still have a lot more. Okay. Next call. Hello, Eric and Melissa. This is Drew from Wisconsin. Hello, Drew. Fellow guitar tech here. It's the middle of winter, and everybody who has not been taking care of their guitars, humidity-wise, their guitars are coming to their breaking point and I've been doing quite a bit of crack repair. Yeah, me and too. Loose brace repair lately. So I have my own methods of the way I do it and how I how I do things, but I'm curious about how you go about um rehumidifying the severely dry guitars you get into your shop. When they get to me, they of course get put right into my little storage room, which is kept at 50% humidity. But sometimes I do, you know, in case humidifiers like the Taylor method, which you're probably familiar with, where they put up, you know, like a whole string of dampens in there to speed up the process. But um, just wondering what you do. And then also on crack repair, uh, like one of these guitars I got in, the top was just sunk in, deflected about a sixteenth of an inch, and the back. Just severely dry. Um, so I'm 
another thing I'm interested to see how you do is do you do cleats, little like those little diamond uh, cross grain, uh, little spruce cleats every few inches, or do you do the method where you cover the entire length of the crack with a running reinforcement patch of spruce? I haven't really decided what I like best yet, so I'm curious what you do on that. And also, um, in, in a past show, I have a comment. One of the guys was talking about Taylor neck resets and how they're easier, but it sure would be nice to have a, a better method of getting those Taylor shims, which is kind of curious to me because isn't the only way to get those shims to be a Taylor certified uh, authorized repair center? Yeah, probably. Yeah. So are you, is, is he or are you guys doing these on your own and making your own little shims? From my understanding, my understanding, I've looked into it. The only way to do the Taylor neck resets is to become an authorized service center, and they send you a huge box of all the shims mm-hmm. that correspond together mm-hmm. for both the butt joint and the under the fingerboard. I don't really know how you do it without that. Um, and another note, um, the the show really would be unbearable without Melissa. Um, that's been mentioned a few episodes ago, and it, I think it's true. If, if she wasn't there to balance you out, I don't think I could listen. Me neither. <laughs> and I hope you know I'm joking. Love the show. Thanks a lot. Have a great day. And I look forward to the. Yeah. Oh, I think he got cut off there at the three-minute mark. Yeah. Thanks, Drew. Um, it would be unbearable to do the podcast without Melissa. Aww. So... You know, so there you go. Thanks, Uh, guys. On the Taylor shims, I generally, you know, when I need to do a neck reset on a Taylor, generally I um, make my own shims out of veneer. You know, I have a veneer, and I'll I'll use uh, masking tape, right, and and tape it to my hand, and then take it to the to the um, belt sander. Belt sander. Thank you. Jeez. <laughs> he was making a belt sander motion with his hands. I don't have any words. That roller rink just rang my bell, man. <laughs> yeah, so I make shims out of um, veneers, you know, mahogany veneer or what, whatever uh, uh, whatever wood I've got there. Um, and what was his other question? Oh, how do I humidify guitars? Yeah, same thing you're talking about, man. I've got a little room that I keep humidified or i use case humidifiers just depending on the guitar and depending on what i've got going on um any method that works is good you know mm-hmm. it doesn't need to be exact it just needs to get the humidity back in the guitar um and on cleats i go back and forth i you know what i i ordered i went i broke down and i ordered a bunch of those tj thompson cleats that run the length of the crack and they're pretty hip they're super lightweight and thin and you know easy to work with and then i glue them in place using magnets and uh i ordered some up because i had a uh a little uh a little tiny um ukulele that i was working on and uh i wanted to put a cleat along the back and uh, I just didn't want to do those diamond cleats. I thought it would look really nice with one of those T.J. Thompson cleat strips 
So I ordered some of those, and I like them. I, I think I'm going to keep using those at least for a while. Order more of them. They're, they're pretty expensive. It'd be better if you'd made your own, you can know. I, can I ask a question? If it's a long cleat like that, and it's really thin, mm-hmm. couldn't that split? So the grain of the guitar mm-hmm. runs one way. And oh. the grain of the cleat runs the opposite way. Oh, okay. So the wood is likely to split along the grain. Okay. It wouldn't. It wouldn't split the other way. Yeah, I was figuring so, the grain went along the. Yeah. So they're they're the T.J. Thompson cleats. They're strips of wood mm-hmm. with really short grain running across the short. Okay. Yeah. You know the short way. Yep. So the grain is opposite of what the grain is on the guitar. Okay, that makes sense. And the same thing would be true if you make your own little diamond cleat or mm-hmm. something. But um, either way is cool. Sometimes I don't use a cleat. It depends on where the crack is and what's going on with the guitar. Um, you know, a really good luthier that I respect a lot, he uses uh, he uses hide glue to glue up cracks, and he just hates adding mass to a top. So he uses hot hide glue, which is tricky when you're just doing a crack, Mm -hmm. right? But if you work it in there to the point that you look on the inside and on the inside of the guitar where the crack is, you'll get little beads of glue coming out the other side. Mm -hmm. He says to him, that's enough of a cleat that he leaves it at that. Wow. Just leaves those little droplets of glue on the inside and leaves it alone. Now, that is more likely to open back up than a cleated crack, mm-hmm. but you're not adding any mass, you know? So right. it just depends on the guitar, and it depends on... Sometimes you get a picky customer who wants to be involved in what you're going to do with the cleats, right. what, or if it, at all, and what kind, and, you know, some some guys don't care. But some guys really are particular about, you know, I want it done this way. And uh, regardless of what the customer wants, the the one thing you got to make sure of, no matter what you do, is make sure it looks good. Don't tell yourself, nobody's ever going to see this. Because the next guy is. He's going to put a mirror in there and look at your work and say, what? on earth was going on here or he's going to say wow nice cleat that's what you want right you want the next guy to stick a mirror in there and say hey that's nice nice cleat if you make a diamond bevel the edges make it fancy make it look nice clean up your extra glue if there's any squeeze out you know mm-hmm. um that's what i'm into i want it to look nice i hate it when i i just worked on a martin that had a bad crack and some guy just glued, I mean, it's like a, just a popsicle stick and Elmer's glue in there. I mean, just the worst <laughs> cleat I've seen. Just terrible. So don't be that guy. Make it look nice. Just, that's, that's, that's a really important thing to me. But whether you're going to do the strips, those TJ Thompson strips, man, they're cool. They're super cool. They're pricey. You get them from Stuart McDonald. They are pricey, but... uh I was impressed. I I thought they were really cool, so I'll probably use those again. And maybe when I run out, I'll make my own. I don't know. Anyhow, where were we? I 
Do we have any more calls left? Yeah, we do. I I lost my spot. Oh, here we go. Okay. Here we go. Oh, it's Drew from Wisconsin again. Hey, Eric and Melissa. It's Drew from Wisconsin again. No. I don't know if you allow <laughs> double calls. Yes, we do. We'll find out here. It's fine. If you uh, delete me or not, or yell at me if you want to. But uh, Dang it, Drew! just in the shop here and thought of another question. I want to know, uh, how do you go about cleaning and quote-unquote hydrating those fake Martin fingerboards? They really bug me. I usually use... Uh, naphtha, a little bit of naphtha on a paper towel for the real wood fingerboard, and then of course follow it up with some nice lemon oil. When I use the naphtha on this, it just makes it look dry and ugly, and I don't think I can lemon oil it because that high pressure laminate or whatever it is, it's not going to soak up any lemon oil. So I had been, I've been polishing them. Hmm, that's cool. Just to try to, with guitar polish, just to try to make them somewhat you know, shiny and, and dark, but still not terribly happy with how I get these things to look. Wondering how you go about cleaning and making those fake fingerboards look decent. Thanks. Uh, love the podcast. Thank you. Bye. Right on. Thank you. Uh, you know, here's my opinion. Step back and think about this. It's not our job to make fake wood look like it's real wood. It's not real wood. Don't worry about how it looks. And if the customer complains, hey, why is why does my fingerboard look dull? Say, well, sir, that's not wood. And you suck. <laughs> no. no. You don't want to say that. <laughs> but um, don't worry about it. I mean, I, I do oil those, actually. I'll just use a little bit of fingerboard oil. I don't know if that's a... I mean, look. I don't think anybody it's, knows. It's... It's, what is it called? Uh, uh, I can never remember what they call that stupid stuff. It's not wood. It's like high-pressurized, vulcanized, rubberized oh. paper wood pulp and epoxy yeah. or, or something. HPF, like, like um, some JJ3 I, like, or something. Whatever, it's not wood. But I, I use just a little bit of oil on it and just let it go, you know? There's just no reason. I mean, again... You can buff it. I've done that before, and that turns out kind of nice, but then you kind of have to wipe off the, you know, the buffing. Lint? The buffing wheel and the frets makes like a black. Oh, like, like a jeweler's, jeweler's rouge, rouge, you yeah. know? And you have to wipe that off, and then once you've wiped it off, then the fingerboard's dull again, so it's kind of a kind of a lateral move. Yep. But yeah, a little bit of fingerboard uh, oil or a little bit of guitar polish, great, but... Beyond that, man, don't let it bug you. Don't sweat it. It's not your problem because it's not wood. And what can you do? It looks it looks how it looks, right? Right. It looks the way it looks, which is pretty good. Pretty good. But let's just leave it at that, you know? Yep. And why worry about it? That's what I say. Uh, let's have another one. Hello, Eric and Melissa. This is Neil from Toronto. Hello, I Neil. your show. Thanks for doing it, and thanks for doing it so well. I'm calling on behalf of my wife, actually. Um, she introduced me to Tombstone, mm. and uh, <laughs> she it's one of her favorite movies. And she's particularly a fan of Kurt Russell's mustache in that movie. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, so I quite like it through her. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think there's all kinds of ways to achieve balance through Tombstone. Mm -hmm. So I applaud your way. 
but I just wanted to, she, uh, she can't stay quiet. If somebody doesn't like Tombstone, I'm neither here nor there, but uh, here we are. Okay. Keep up the great work. Thanks, guys. Bye. Neil, tell your wife I said hi, because she sounds awesome. Did you hear that? She can't, she can't stay quiet if somebody doesn't like Tombstone. Look, <clears throat> there were parts that I liked. I liked Val Kilmer. The the big problem, Neil, is that I built it up as this great movie. Like, Melissa, you're going to love this yeah. movie. This is one of my favorite Westerns. And she likes Westerns. I, no, I love Westerns. And I love real Westerns. Yeah. Like Cowboys versus Aliens. <laughs> That's not a real Western. That's a, it's it's a not good, a bad show. It's a good but... movie. But I was just disappointed by the quality of... 90s in it it was so 90s well when i used to watch it it was the 90s right. so i wasn't really thinking right how dated it would be i hadn't seen it for 20 years sorry that's all right anyway thanks for the call neil that's awesome that's it for the calls we we breezed through those yeah that was painless it only took us i don't nah, know it was it was 24 minutes very good Good. Yeah. So uh, do you want to take a break or do you want to do some, some emails? Uh, I don't know. Yeah, let's do some emails. What do you say? Letters. We get letters. We get stacks and stacks of letters. Hi, guys. Here's an easy little question for you. Do you have a favorite past episode? Which mm. Fret Files podcast episode stands out as a favorite, if any? Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Ben. Well, we don't listen, so... And <laughs> you might think that's a joke, but it's... No, I actually do. I usually do listen, just, if nothing else, to make sure that it flows. Yeah. I'm always I'm always concerned that I've edited it strangely or left in some dead air or yeah. something weird, so I do listen. But, uh, yeah, the two that come to mind, Ben... Um, and this is just because I love these people so much. My interview with Henry Cooper, mm -hmm. blues guitar player. Loved that episode. Henry is so cool, man. Henry is so cool. And my interview with Ole Fuzzy. Oh, yeah. A.D. Barron. I don't know what numbers those episodes are, but you can find them. Henry Cooper yeah. and, and Old Fuzzy. Uh I those those are my two favorite episodes to yeah. to do. I noticed that I am not in either of your favorite episodes. Well, I'm awfully sorry. And how dare uh, you, sir? Well, here's the thing: all the question and answer I know, episodes they all run together. They all run together, and none of them really stand out. Some like some of them we, we get done, and I'm like that, that felt like, that felt really good. That yeah. was a good one, and it's always fun. Yeah, but I, there's not one really that stands out any more than another. Did you do the pickup shootout with me, or did I do that no, by myself? you did that by yourself. There was one where you did, uh, who said it, Jack White, or I don't remember what else. Then that one was funny. Oh, you dreamed that. We never did that. <laughs> that wasn't real. Did we really do that? Yeah. I remember writing that. I don't remember. Did, yeah. I'm sure we did. We really did it. Anyway. Uh, thanks, Ben. Thanks for the question. <clears throat> Hey, Eric and Melissa, you had two questions in the last episode that I wanted to chime in on. 
One was about a 90s Korean Epiphone casino with bridge issues. I have a late 90s casino that I love and that I've worked on a bit. I've had to do some electronics repairs through the F-holes, also as discussed on the last episode, and I concur that it's a profanity-inducing process. Mm-hmm. Though easier, since I started using some 12-inch plastic-coated twisty ties that came from the packaging from some kids' toys, <clears throat> which I'm glad I saved. Nice. Because their stiffness but flexibility has proved invaluable for this process, especially the output output jack. So now I have a confession. You mentioned that casinos should have a block under the bridge, and I mm-hmm. protested out loud. No, they don't. Oh, yes, I've, they do. I've had the pickups out on mine and never noticed a block. But I had to be sure, and of course, I should never have doubted you. Sure enough, there's a small block keeping it all stable. What did I tell you? Please forgive my impertinence. Hopefully, Melissa forgiving you for doubting her about yoga has you in a gracious mood. Oh, yes. Yes. Obviously. But yeah, I hope that dude gets his casino some help and takes your counsel not to put humbuckers in it. Yeah. Also, my casino has a Bigsby and it stays in tune just fine. But even if it didn't, it looks cool. Yeah. You still haven't changed my mind about that or about Jazz Masters. Yeah. Thanks, both right of on. you, for all your hard work on one of my favorite podcasts. Peace. Brannon from the cornfields of Indiana. Thank you, Brannon. You know, people get the idea that I, that I hate Jazz Masters or something. I don't. I don't. Fenders, that's my favorite brand. Fender guitars. Right. Jazz Masters are one of my least favorite Fenders, but still in my favorite brand, right? Right. I mean, I would, like, if... If I were invited to go play a gig right now and didn't have a guitar with me and mm-hmm. backstage they had every Gibson model available and a Jazzmaster, I would pick up the Jazzmaster. It's not that I and it's not that I hate Gibsons. Don't get me wrong here. What what Fender would you have to pick on like would you pick a Jazzmaster over that Fender? Uh one of the little short scale student jobs well that's not a real fender well it is but it's just not a <laughs> right it's not a real fan uh but um i'm a telly guy i am a telly guy i also like strats then there's all the other guitars so it's one two and then everything else and then everything else okay right right that but makes sense. but to me like i'm so used to playing fenders that i would rather pick up a jazz master than a les paul right it's not that I hate jazz masters. And on the Bigsby's, dude, some guitars need a Bigsby. Like nothing dresses up a Gretsch like a Bigsby. I mean, what mm-hmm. what would a white Falcon be, right? I mean, you got to have, or if you had a John Lennon Rickenbacker, right? Mm-hmm. The little 325 doesn't look right without a Bigsby to me. So there you go. There you go, Brandon. Greetings. I just reattached the headstock on this Harmony Patrician. I feel hmm. good about the glue job and that it will hold up to many more years of playing. It it was a really jagged break, so it took some time to get it to come all the way back together. In fact, you can still see the brake line on the backside of the headstock. This is a pretty inexpensive guitar that is owned by a relative, so neither I nor the owner are too concerned with the looks of the repair, just the functionality. He was thinking the guitar was done for. I told him I could get it playing again, so I'm more or less done with that part of the job. But here is my question. 
what would one do at this point to make that visible brake line go away? I used tight bond to glue the two pieces back together, then super glue to fill some of the cracks on the outside. When I went to level all that out, I went through the lacquer in a couple spots, so I sprayed a couple coats of color tone aged clear lacquer from Stumac. In the photos, you can see the end result, which again, for this customer, is going to pass just fine. I just want to learn all I can from this job, so what would you do here, master? <laughs> Thanks. Well, first of all, yeah. don't call me master. <laughs> Thanks so much. Love from the wet and cold Skagit Valley, oh, yeah. Dean. Thanks, Dean. Um, it So, what you don't know, dear listener, is that Dean sent me a picture, and... Uh, this is a natural, it's, it's, it's a clear lacquer. Well, mm -hmm. like a, a little bit yellowed, you know, a little bit stained. Right. But um, clear, so you can see the wood, right? It's really hard to make that crack go away. Now, if this thing had been painted black... Be easy. Hey, no sweat, man. Yeah. You sand it down, you repaint it black. I mean, no big deal. Um, but no, there's no, I mean, there's no... <laughs> Well, there, it's an art, mm -hmm. is what it is. And uh, I've done, I don't know how many hundreds, if not, I, I hesitate to say thousands, but it's possible. I've been doing this since the 1900s, you guys. <laughs> so it's possible. Uh, but um, you you get better with each one, okay? And there's, there's touch-up techniques. I would use the same stuff that you mentioned here pretty much uh although I don't use tight bond anymore on headstock brakes if I can get away with it I'll use I'll use uh hot hide glue trickier to work with but I think it is a better bond and if it ever breaks again makes it way easier for the next guy it's a serviceable joint you can you can still glue it where old tight bond is all has to be removed before you can glue it again. Right. right. So we've talked about that plenty on the podcast. But um yeah, once you get it glued up uh and and the glue has dried and set, then you can go back and backfill with sometimes you know, I have I have chunks of mahogany laying around and well all kinds of wood. And if there's a little chunk missing, I'll try to cut a little chunk to to fill whatever's missing on the, mm -hmm. you know, because sometimes they they crack, but they shatter too, and there's little pieces missing. So if there's anything that's really missing, you can just cut a tiny little piece of mahogany and fill in little tiny patches. I mean, get down on a microscopic level with this joint. Maybe and, not that close. And try to, well, I mean, I get a big magnifying glass thing out and look at it and and um. Fill, try to fill the biggest voids mm -hmm. with wood again if there's anything and then you can go and you can either touch that up with cyanoacrylate or shellac or lacquer or you know any number of things and then try to match the stain if there if you have to do that but it comes down to art it comes down to art and I don't know if I've ever mentioned it on the podcast but I used to paint I mean I used to be an artist in and I graduated artist in my class in high school. I mean, I I I was a, a an artist, right? right? Right. So, I mean, I have a little bit of that. Not that I was ever great, but um, I have a little bit of that um, 
in my past, and I, I approach it like that. To me, when I'm touching up something that I want it to look nice, you know, I oftentimes I think of it as a painting. Like I think of it as, mm-hmm. you know, like restoring a painting or something. Right. That makes sense. So uh, just get close and do what you can. Yeah, you're 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 all you're doing all the right things, man. I mean, you know, everything you mentioned that you're doing is yeah, I, I once you get it glued up and there's if there's really a line, if you didn't get it aligned right, there can really be an a, an edge. There can, mm-hmm. you know, there's it's tricky. Yeah. It's tricky. You got to get it just right. And if you really wanted to go like if this customer really wanted it to look nicer, at the point you've got it, from what I saw at the pictures, what you would have to do would just be to sand it oh, okay. and refinish it entirely, which can be done. Yeah, you know, but but geez, yeah. Well, good luck, Dean. Thanks, Dean. <clears throat> Hi, Eric and Melissa. I recently found your show and love listening to you talk guitars. I bought a Yamaha C70 classical guitar, and the action is very high, around 10 millimeters at the 12th fret. It's also high at the nut end. I know I can file out the nut slots and take material from the back of the bridge insert, but which should I adjust Mm. first, nut or bridge, and what string height would you recommend? Thank you if you were able to answer my question on the podcast. If not, thanks for giving your time and putting out a great show. Cheers from Russ in the UK. Right on. Thanks, Russ. Um... I hesitate to just answer these questions as you've framed them because I don't know about your guitar. So, for example, you didn't mention anything about whether the neck is straight, the neck angle. You know, if it has if it has issues on either of those two fronts, then lowering the saddle and lowering the nut might help a little bit, but you're going to end up with a guitar that is going to buzz or, Mm -hmm. you know, all kinds of problems. So really you want to make sure that the neck is straight first and that the neck angle is good. Now, if it has a good neck angle and the neck is straight, then yes, you can, um, you can start dialing things in. Uh, I do the nut first and then the saddle. Oh, and he says, uh, what string height would you recommend? Uh, some of that's personal preference, but I, I measure it at the 14th fret, and I would want to see somewhere around 2 millimeters at the 14th fret. Wow. So his is super high. Yeah, what did he say his 10 is? 10 millimeters at the 12th yeah. fret. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, it's super high. And that's why I wonder, you know, th- yeah. it sounds to me like it either has a bad neck angle or a severe twist bow in the neck. Oh, okay. You know? Mm-hmm. So... Watch out for that. Yeah. Well, good luck, Russ. Thanks, Russ. Greetings from Tucson, Arizona. I'm considering changing from 10s to 9s on my GNL Legacy. The trim is resting against the body, not floating. What adjustments will need to be made? Thank you, and thanks to Jason and Skip for pointing me to your podcast. That's from Mike in Tucson. Cool. Thanks, Mike. So going from 10s to 9, you're going to at least need to adjust the uh, truss rod to compensate for the difference in string tension. Mm -hmm. And you'll probably also need to adjust the intonation uh, and maybe even 
tweak the action just a little bit, you know, because tens and nines pull differently on the whole guitar. Um, if you use the tremolo, he says it's it's resting against the body, not floating. So going from tens to nines is not going to change anything there. But if you use the tremolo arm, what you're going to find is that it's stiffer with nines. So you might need to loosen up the springs a little bit if you use the tremolo arm. Here's a question. Yeah. Nines are bigger or smaller? Smaller. So uh, the, they'd be smaller in the nut slots, right? Mm-hmm. So is that an yeah. issue or is that... Not usually. It's such a small difference that it's really not an issue. And um, a nut slot is kind of a valley. Oh, okay. So the string rests in... So it's not like a U shape. It's like a V shape. Well, it I mean it depends on whoever cut it. Oh, okay. But, but oftentimes it's it's like a it's like a V shape valley where the string can the string sits in there fine, okay. you know. So um usually not an issue, but you do run into that sometimes if like sometimes guys come to me and they want their guitar tuned down to like drop C or something mm-hmm. and they want to use a set of 14 through 72 strings and I say okay but I'm gonna have to really widen the nut slots and then if you ever want to put you know nines or something on this guitar the strings are just gonna yeah. <laughs> roll around <laughs> in the in the nut so you'll need a new nut if you ever go back to light strings again so hmm. tens to nines not a big deal 13s to nines that could be an issue okay yeah interesting yeah let's take a break we'll be right back after this If you're at all curious about my guitar repair services or my custom guitars, you can check out my websites, ericdaw.com, that's more the repair side of things, that's E-R-I-C-D-A-W.com. I would love to help you with that tricky repair or restoration. You know, maybe you don't have somebody in your area, or maybe you've got a very valuable guitar that you don't want to trust to just anybody. And the guitars that I make are at pinupcustomguitars.com. That's pinup, like pinup girl, P-I-N-U-P. I offer worldwide service. Uh, on repairs people send me repairs from all over the country and uh, well even internationally and I definitely send guitars all over the world so if you're curious about what I do and want to learn more that's how to check it out ericdaw.com and pinupcustomguitars.com Hey guitar nerds you probably already know that I make custom leather guitar straps All of my straps are handcrafted from design all the way to completion. You can see examples of my past work on my Instagram account. That's at MelcoLeather. Visit MelcoLeather.com now to get free shipping on orders of $35 or more within the U.S. That's MelcoLeather.com. M-E-L-C-O Leather.com. Hello, Eric and Melissa. I recently discovered your podcast and have been trying to play catch up listening to earlier podcasts for a couple months now. You are both a wealth of knowledge and always a joy to listen to. I'm not sure if you've covered this on an earlier podcast or not, but I had a question about receiving and shipping guitar work. I have been offering local professional repairs for just over 10 years now, and just in the last couple of months, I've had a few client referrals in different states contact me about work. I end up referring them to other luthiers in their state that had good reputations. Yeah. 
Some of it I would have been happy to do, but I was so unsure about how to handle the shipping side of things. What are your thoughts on how to handle shipping in relation to yourself and the client? I assume the client pays shipping to and from, and what shipping company would you recommend for safe handling? Also, how can you set up an instrument to a client's specific setup specs, then guarantee this instrument will show up exactly how I set it up after being shipped multiple states? Uh, maybe I'm just overthinking things. I appreciate you taking the time to listen to my woes. I look forward to hearing your thoughts. All the best to you and your family. That's from Michael Carricker. Yeah, Michael. Thanks, Michael. Um, I'm with you. I mean, you're. I'm. I'm resonating with a lot of what you're saying here. I I get a lot of calls from all over the country. Sometimes somebody wants to ship me something, and I'll say, "Listen, this is a simple repair. Please don't ship that to me. You should have no problem finding." a luthier closer to you who can handle this, you know. Now, a big restoration job, you know, I take those shipped from wherever, or or if it's something like a, you know, if somebody's going to ship me a pickup to repair, that's easy. Mm-hmm. You put it in a tiny box and you ship it. A guitar, shipping a guitar is a little, a little trickier, so I sympathize with that. Um, I use UPS, and yes, the client pays shipping to and from, uh, but I use UPS. I always tell people just... Just make sure you pack it really well. Go onto YouTube and watch a video about how to ship a guitar. You know, there's there's videos that'll that'll kind of walk you through that. Mm-hmm. But if it's a valuable guitar, make sure you insure it. And again, I use UPS. You can use FedEx. That's fine. Um, those are the only two that I would really use. I wouldn't. Some people send guitars through the mail, the United States Post Office. Yeah. I don't recommend that. But um, whatever. Anyhow, uh, yeah, does that cover it? Uh, what else does he say? Uh, how can I then guarantee the instrument will show up exactly how I set it up after being shipped mul- multiple states? Um, that's why I don't take little tiny jobs. You know, if somebody's sending me something, it's because I'm going to, you know, refret it and do all kinds of stuff. And then, then I set it up the best I can, dial it in, and then send it to them and... and you know, I'll tell them, look, we're shipping this across the country and it's just had major surgery, so let it settle and then you'll probably, you know, you might have to take it to your local guy or if you're good at doing setups, you might have to dial it in just a little bit, but it shouldn't be anything major, shouldn't have to tweak anything major. Yeah. But, you know, people generally understand that, I mean... When, when you're doing more major restorative work, mm-hmm. um, you don't want to get too hung up on on uh, on how it's going to settle and ship because that's going to need to be dialed in whether they're local or not, you know? Right. And it's kind of tricky when you're not there to do it, but hopefully they have somebody local that can help them with that. Yeah. Right? When When people are sending me a guitar from, you know, 10 states away, it's because they don't have somebody local who can do the, like a massive restoration. Mm -hmm. So anyway, thanks, Michael. Hi, Eric and Melissa. Max from London again. 
Love catching up on the show and thanks for all the tips. I was going to refinish a 70s Gibson SG that was refinished in white-ish polyurethane. It was originally the classic SG mahogany. I wanted to try and check the finish. You mentioned the freezer method you use. Should I leave the nitro cure a certain time before putting it in the freezer? Anything else I should know before I experiment? Thanks again Mm -hmm. for the podcast. Kind regards, Max. Yeah, you need to you need to let the nitro cure. Um, at least a week, ten days is better or more. I mean, the longer you can wait, the better. I mean, but um, and you want to make sure that you're using a nitro that will lacquer check. Some of it won't. You know, they put plasticizers in there to specifically keep it from mm-hmm. checking. Yeah, I'll let you in on a little secret here. I use uh, Mohawk piano lacquer it's high solids it's a lot like the old stuff that's what i use um and then thin it i thin it with with uh lacquer thinner by about one third so two thirds lacquer one third thinner that you know it comes in a big gallon bucket ready to spray Mm -hmm. right it it's at the right viscosity ready to spray but i thin it even further because it seems like it helps when you when you want to get lacquer checking, it helps it dry faster and harder and will lacquer check better. Cool. The other thing, the other tip I can give you is uh, use a sealer like a like a vinyl sealer. Mm-hmm. Um, it's called you know vinyl sanding sealer. Um, but in my experience. It, it will lacquer check better because that vinyl sealer uh, doesn't get brittle, and then the lacquer on top of it does get brittle, and so you kind of get this tectonic you know, thing happening where um, the brittle lacquer on top is able to shrink and expand a little bit better on, sitting on top of that vinyl sealer that's a little bit more elastic. Okay. Right? So you're talking color... Sanding sealer, then lacquer? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Yes, indeed. Hope that helps, Max. Hi, Erica. <laughs> he wrote that your name is Erica. <laughs> I think a lot of people use a, like a, a speech-to-text thing. Yeah. Because a lot of times your name comes up Alyssa or oh. something. Well, I'm going to read it, Erica. Hi, Erica and Melissa. It's not Erica, okay? <laughs> it's Eric. Hope you all and the little ones are doing well. We are. I had a question about reverse headstocks, and this obviously pertains to Fender or Fender-style guitars. I know that there are certain companies that make necks with the reverse headstock option, but you could, but could you just go the route of buying a lefty neck for a right-handed guitar and replacing the nut? Is there a need for the string tree with a re- with a reverse headstock? Would there be any discernible tone difference versus a typical headstock configuration? I think that this would make a fun project one day, and I would love to know your thoughts. The only real downside I can think of is that it would be inconvenient having the tuners on the bottom side of the headstock. Thanks, Corey from Nashville. Mm. Thanks, Corey. Um, if you use a left-handed neck, it won't have side dots either on Mm-hmm. On, on the side on you your, need. On your side. Uh, yeah, but you you certainly can. You certainly can do that. It will need a new nut, and you'll need to, 
either get used to having no side dots or have somebody put side dots on it. Is there a tone difference? <sighs> I don't I don't know, man. Here's here's the deal. Here's the deal. Have you ever listened to a record and thought to yourself, "Oh man, that sounds like a reverse headstock." What is re- why? Why would somebody have a reverse headstock? What's the point of it? It's something different. It's cool. I had so here when I was a kid, mm-hmm. I mean kid, I mm-hmm. was probably, you know, 13. Okay. I went down to Mike's Music here in Idaho Falls. And they had, it's, it was a rare model. It was some weird Japanese mirror image strat where it was backwards, like a Jimi Hendrix. Mm-hmm. Everything was backwards, so but right-handed. Okay. So it looked like you were playing a left-handed guitar upside down. Okay. Okay. So backwards headstock, everything. Mm-hmm. And I liked Jimi Hendrix, so I bought it. So, so I thought it was cool, right? Mm-hmm. That's all. People it's think it's cool. cool. Well, you see Hendrix, he's got an upside down headstock. It was a thing, you know, I mean, Nuno Betancourt, do you know who that is? No. Nobody does. Yeah. He had a backward headstock. It was a thing. It's a thing. Okay. It's just another thing. It's just, just something thing. to be different. Okay. Now, you're... If you got a backward Fender style six on the side headstock, your low E is going to be a lot longer from the nut to the to the tuner. Mm-hmm. If you get on a forum, oh no, you will read p- how people think this affects your tone. Okay, mm. I never listen to a record and. Wonder if it's a reverse headstock. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I, does it affect the tone? I, I don't know, dude. Probably not. <laughs> I mean, probably not as much as whether your shoes are black or brown. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, it's one of those things that just doesn't move the radar for me. If you think it's cool, do it. But not because you're going to get better tone. Okay. Okay. Well, thanks, Corey. Hello, Daw family. I've been listening to the Fret Files podcast for about a year or so. I love the good vibes that you both have and, of course, the topics you are dealing with. As a fan of Dan Electro Guitars, I would like to mention the great podcast you did about lipstick pickups and also Doug Tulloch interview. Yeah. I hope, as he says on his website, that this year will bring the new updated edition of his book, Neptune Bound. I really want it. Me too. About seven years ago, I bought a Korean reissue of a 56, specifically the Dan Electro 56 slash U2 Pro. Mm -hmm. I've upgraded this guitar with 250K CTS pots, vintage Klusen tuners, and I've also replaced the stock pickguard to an original one, a part that has been really hard to find. Pickup... Pickups upgrade is still pending. Stock ones are okay, but just okay. Nothing special. My options are Seymour Duncan or Neptune by Doug Tulloch. Probably the latter. Yeah, Neptune. Oh, yeah, Neptune. Uh, my question is aimed at a, to a similar topic that was discussed a few weeks ago in a question from one of your listeners. It's about the Dan Electro binding tape. In my case, the Dan Electro 56 Pro didn't have binding, and I recently bought one bought one tape roll on eBay. The seller mainly recommends two things, not to stretch the tape during application, working on the contour little by little while tightening the areas 
where it has already been applied. Finally, make a union just below the bottom strap pin with a 3 8 inch overlap. Regarding this, I think that maybe it would be better to overlap just below the jack plate. I really don't know how it was done on vintage Dan Electros or in the 90s reissues. I would also like to know some recommendations for applying the binding tape exactly in the center of the guitar contour. I mean, being the tape is about one and a quarter inches wide and the guitar thickness is about 1.85 inches, I want to know how to apply the tape and keep it completely parallel and centered to guitar contour. Do you have any advice for this? Thank you very much in advance for your help. David from Valencia, Spain. Hmm. Hmm. Thanks, David. Uh, the tape that I've seen in the past, um, you know, all parts used to sell a, a roll of, you know, they advertised it as here's binding edge tape for Dan Electros. Mm -hmm. um, the stuff that I've seen and the stuff that's on the modern reissues uh, is kind of crappy and is very prone to just coming off. It's not very good. Mm -hmm. So I don't know what you bought on eBay. Maybe it's good. Okay, I I don't know, but if it's like the Dan Electro prefab tape that I've seen, it's junk. So you could try it. Um, as far as getting it centered, yeah, uh, just take your time. Just take your time. Eyeball it as you go, and and you know the only thing I could think of, you know, if you really want to get complicated is you could mask you could run some masking tape first along the edges and then put the put yeah. the binding tape in between the masking tape but that seems just as hard seems just as hard and it's a little excessive i think you can do it dude i think you can do it if you just take it slow what i recommend is using um the real stuff mm -hmm. uh, it's called marine vinyl Oh, really? Yeah. It's like a, you know, vinyl what do, what do you call it? Nogahide? Uh what? yeah. Like uh, pleather? Yeah. yeah. It's like it's kind of like pleather, but um and uh I use, you know, that uh what's that really stinky contact cement that it, weld weldwood. Yep. I use weldwood and real vinyl that you know, you cut into a strip. Mm -hmm. And what I've done in the past is I find a uh, a roll of masking tape that's exactly the right width mm -hmm. that I want to use, right? Put that on the marine vinyl, and then now you know wow. how to cut the strip, right? And how do you cut it? What, what do you cut it with? Scissors? No, with an, with an X-Acto. Oh, you okay, know, yeah. Real slowly. but uh, And you can use a straight edge to, to steady, yeah. steady yourself. But... Um, you should be able to easily find like, you know, one and a quarter inch, you know, masking tape and, mm -hmm. and use that as a template for, to get your width right and cut your own tape. Now, maybe the tape you bought is perfectly fine. I don't know. But if it's not, take it off yeah. <laughs> and do it the way I'm telling you. Um, and as far as where the joint is, yeah, that's where they typically join them is by the bottom strap button. I would hesitate. Uh, drawing on from my own experience, putting it where the output jack is. And I think his idea is that it'll kind of be covered. Mm -hmm. But 
since you don't have that much overlap, because the output jack would be directly in the center of it, it would tend to peel easier. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah. 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 Um, yeah, I'd, I would overlap it at the strap button, yeah. the bottom strap button. Absolutely. Thanks, David. <clears throat> Hello, and thank you for the show. I'm a new and avid listener. After finding no tenor conversation, Tenor conversion necks on sa- for sale online. Sorry, I took my glasses off. Jeez. I know, I'm, I, they're hurting my head. I took them off. I can see now. Let me start over. Hello, and thank you for the show. I'm a new and avid listener. After finding no tenor conversion necks on for sale online, I have turned my thoughts toward modding an existing neck by making a rip cut to take off the area of strings one and six. Jeez. Uh, but I've never tried to cut down a neck before like this. I'm not sure anybody has. Uh, I was thinking about trying on a Strat clone due to the cheap supply. I was planning to leave the bottom regular width to fit in the neck pocket. Any suggestions on setting up the cut or obvious problems I'm overlooking? Thank you. That's from Joe. Joe. <laughs> There's a reason no one does this, Joe. <laughs> Uh, see, a tenor neck is 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 narrower. Okay. And the heel is a certain width. So what are you gonna do? You're gonna you're gonna taper it like a like a triangle? Well, he just said uh, he's gonna leave the bottom regular width to fit in the neck pocket. Joe, I don't have any advice other than to say, uh, I I wouldn't. I would I wouldn't do this. Joe, I applaud your tenacity. <laughs> and I think that if that's what you want to do, you should do it. And what's the worst that could happen? Well, I uh, you could lose a finger. Oh, that's true. That's true. <laughs> I mean the worst that could happen. Joe, don't, don't lose any fingers. Talk about the worst that could happen. Keep all of your appendages. Um I I uh Any way I think about this, it's a bad idea. I, I don't... I, yeah, I know there's no tenor conversion necks available, but that's because the width is way different. You know what I would do? Man, I, I'll tell you what I would do. Um, Eastwood sells some tenor electric guitars. At least they did, mm-hmm. uh, if I'm remembering correctly. I would buy one of those. Um, trying to convert like a Squire Strat into a tenor is Joe if you'll forgive me it's a fool's errand i wouldn't rec- <laughs> i wouldn't recommend it i wouldn't recommend it i'm so sorry but thank you for writing into the show joe if you attempt this will you please keep us updated we would love keep, to hear please from you keep melissa updated you can contact her <laughs> through her website <laughs> i'm kidding, I'm kidding. Yeah, I just, I've never, I've never thought of doing this until just now. I, see, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't screen these questions. So I don't, I didn't know what this, that this, that this was, I'm blindsided by this question. Yeah. Honestly, yeah. I am. I've never thought about it, but it doesn't sound like a good idea. Here's an idea, Joe, a router. Instead of trying to rip it with some sort of crazy saw, take a router to it. Don't listen to Melissa. This is this that this is a worse idea. I'm gonna route through the frets. This is bad. Okay, Joe, just don't don't even attempt it. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Joe. 
Hey, Eric. <clears throat> I've really been enjoying your podcast. You and Melissa are awesome. Thanks so much for sharing all your knowledge. I'm a geologist by day. Oh, cool. He says it's boring. I know. Haha. But I, that's serious. That's Melissa's like, dream job. Yeah. Anytime we go out. I come and back. And there's rocks on the ground. I mean, just like <laughs> you go down to the river and there's river rocks in there. She'll come home with a pocket full of rocks. Like, oh, look at this one. This one has a stripe. It's, oh, look at this one. Maybe I, there's a fossil inside. <laughs> I'll go to garage sales and buy other people's collection of rocks that they found. Yeah, we have a curio cabinet <laughs> full of rocks that she's bought from old people at garage sales. <laughs> I swear to God, that's true. He, that's, this is true. I'm looking at it yeah. right now. And we also have a giant rock garden in the backyard. Oh, yeah. And Eric is very patient with me. She's somewhat of an amateur geologist. Yeah. Um, but I'm patient with your guitar collection, so. <clears throat> anyway, but in the evenings, after everyone goes to sleep, I burn the midnight oil and try honing my skills and as an amateur stringed instrument repairman with old, beat-up, cheap guitars, banjos, and mandolins. At this point, I've got a few neck resets under my belt mm. that turned out reasonably well. I'm currently working on smaller body 1960s K guitars uh, that, that have, oh, this single guitar that had action on the 12th fret close to the to a quarter inch. I have the neck off and I removed material from the lower heel to obtain a good neck angle. I'm fine tuning the fit now using sandpaper pulls. I'm having trouble getting the neck fit just right. I think the main issue is that the guitar sides where the neck joint meet the body are not flat. They are somewhat convex, convex up or out, which makes fitting the neck heel pretty tricky for me compared to the previous resets where the sides were pretty mm -hmm. much flat. Yeah. I find I get the fit very close, and I realize I've overset the angle. I know it's a long process and a tricky one, but do you have any advice or tricks on how to fit the heel with the convex sides? Thanks so much. Keep up the great work, you two. That's from Warren. In He's a Georgian in Alberta. Hmm, thanks, Warren. I don't have any tricks, man. There's not any tricks. It's it's a, It's time-consuming. It's tricky. It's a long process. You have to be patient. And it's hard to do. I don't know what else to tell you. It takes practice. It's hard to do. And I've I've run into that before. You you get a guitar where where the sides meet the neck, it's not flat. They they're they're convex and all you can do is is match that radius so that the neck fits flush against the sides. It's tricky. It's dang tricky. So just and I sympathize. Patience. Yeah. Just keep working at it. Yeah. It's it's hard to do. Very hard to do. Good luck, Warren. Just to satisfy my curiosity from listening to your podcast and hearing you say it's like ice cream when people ask you what guitar, pickup, toilet paper, etc. they should buy, what is your favorite flavor of ice cream? <laughs> I enjoy the show, and I like the natural banter between you and Melissa. My wife and I spent a year working from home together before she made me get a shop away from home so she could have some peace and quiet. Hmm. That's from Rick. Right on. Yeah, I work from home, but it's a separate building. Mm -hmm. so there's two buildings on our property. There's our house, and then there's our shop. So, And even when we're both in the shop, there's a whole floor separating us. Yeah. yeah. So. so we don't have that problem. Uh, yeah, I do tell people that a lot. It is like ice cream. You know, people ask me, 
which pickup should I buy? And mm-hmm. I'll say, this, like is my, this is my pat answer. Well, it's not that simple. I'll say, trying to recommend a pickup is like trying to recommend an mm-hmm. ice cream flavor. What you like might not be what I like. Okay, so what kind it's of ice cream preference. do you like? So Rick's question is what kind of ice cream I actually like. And this may surprise you, but my my favorite is a really good vanilla. I know that's boring, but listen, I'm not talking about, you know, the, the, the store brand vanilla ice cream. I'm talking about like little, like black chunks of vanilla beans, vanilla bean in there. I mean, like a really good vanilla is a flavor. See, people think that vanilla is like unflavored ice cream. It's like the base upon which every other ice cream is built. Mm -hmm. This is not true. Vanilla is a flavor, and it's a very, very delicate and beautiful flavor. And a really, really good vanilla ice cream is superb. I love it. But if you have a really, really good bowl of vanilla ice cream, you always add, like, raspberries or something to it. I like berries. So he likes berry-flavored vanilla ice cream i'm not the kind of guy i don't like a bunch of like cookies and oreos and crap in my ice cream mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i don't like mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. <laughs> maybe <laughs> maybe a caramel swirl Mm-mm. but no no yeah plain vanilla but a good vanilla it's like a it's like a really really good whiskey He's a simple man. Yes. And it's best enjoyed in the nude or <laughs> with with a soft bathrobe. No, I'm just kidding. These are jokes. I don't know. That's that's the that's the trick, but I don't it's vanilla. But I don't know why we're talking about this because this is a guitar podcast. Okay. Next. Thanks, Rick. Hi, Eric. I know you ship a lot of guitars all over the place. In your experience, which carrier is best? FedEx, mm. UPS, Bax, which I don't know. You never heard of Bax? Never heard of Bax. Bax Global. Bax Global. Or the post office. I'd like to hear your thoughts on shipping. Thanks. That's from Jim. Thanks, Jim. We talked about this a little bit earlier in the podcast, but I use UPS for a few reasons. I feel like um, I feel like they uh, are I feel like they're more careful. I don't know this for a fact. I just feel like they are. I've had better luck with UPS. I've had better luck with their customer service. I've had better luck with their service in general. I've had better luck with their drivers. I've had way better luck with their website. Have you ever tried to use FedEx's website? No. It's like they don't want your business. I'm, <laughs> I swear to God. It's like they've designed a website to frustrate you to the point that you use someone else. It's that bad. Wow. I I couldn't. The last time I tried to ship FedEx, I gave up. Wow. Because it was that bad. You get, you know, you have to fill out. And for some reason, like, autofill wasn't working. Mm -hmm. I mean, I have an account. It's supposed to fill in all of my details so I don't have to type in my address and everything. Mm -hmm my phone number, everything, none of that would work. Uh, It wouldn't recognize my account number, which I have one. You finally get 
it working, and then you get to the end of this long process. It took me, I, sw- I swear to you, I spent hours on their website trying to send a box to Hawaii. And by the, by the time I got to the point where, you know, you, there's a button at the end, you click ship, you click it, and then this box popped up that said, I'm sorry, this service is not available right now. <laughs> like, what do you mean this service? Shipping is the only service you offer. <laughs> I'm not here trying to buy pants. I'm not here trying to get something repaired. All you do is ship boxes. No, I'm sorry, this service is not available right now. So uh, if for nothing else, the fact that UPS's website is infinitely better than both FedEx and USPS, but they are they're more careful. They're better about insurance. So if I if I send a guitar insured and it's insured for over a thousand dollars, they have a a special bag they put it in. UPS puts it in a special bag and they put it in a special place in the truck. Wow. Yeah. For high high dollar stuff. Mm-hmm. Maybe the other services do that, but I don't know. I know for a fact UPS does that. So they, they treat their high-dollar, high-value insured packages differently. They treat them differently. And um, with FedEx, I believe that um, you can only, they'll only allow you to insure a guitar up to $1,000. Wow. That's, I could be wrong about that, but that's the, the last I heard. That's that was the case with UPS. I've insured things for ten thousand dollars or more, mm-hmm. and they have no problem taking your money and insuring it for that. Yeah. Uh, but um, you know, anytime you have to make a claim with any of these companies, it's going to be it's going to be a process mm-hmm. and it's going to suck. But hopefully, that never happens to you. And in my experience, if you use UPS, it's a lot less likely to happen to you. So that's, that's my experience. But anyhow, that wraps it up for this episode of the Fret Files podcast. Thanks so much for listening. We do appreciate it. If you want to participate in the show, go to my website. It's just my name, ericdaw.com, E-R-I-C-D-A-W.com. Click the contact link. Send in your question or comment there, and we'll use it as part of the show. The other way to do it is to call or text 757-774-8482. That's 757-774-8482, and we will use that as part of the show. Thanks so much, guys. We'll talk to you next time. Good night.